morning. If you would, uh, stand for the Word of God, please. Looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they all flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a new, I'm sorry, is there a thing of which is, is said, see this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of God for the people of God. You can be seated. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate that. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. My name's Brad. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. As you may have guessed, we're beginning a brand new series today in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is actually one of five books in the Old Testament considered to be wisdom literature. The others are Proverbs, Job, Lamentations, and Song of Psalms. Uh, now, Herman Melville, who was the author of Moby Dick, he said that uh, the book of Ecclesiastes was actually the truest book he had ever read. Uh, and it's actually one of God's gifts to us to help us live well in the real world. He wants us to know how to live in a world where bad things happen, where injustice occurs, and where death waits for everyone, both us and those that we love. He wants us to know how to live in a place just like that. In fact, he's going to argue that we have to know that if we want to build a beautiful life in this world, we have to, that building a beautiful life begins by embracing the end of our life every single day. Um, in fact, in her book, um, Rebuilding Beautiful, Carrie, Carrie, uh, Kayla Stockline says it this way. She says, life is both beautiful and terrible. It's wonderful and horrible. It's meaningful and mysterious. And it's all tangled and twisted together. Just so you understand uh, why she would say this, she should know. You know, Kayla was married to a pastor. In fact, his dad had been a pastor. And um, uh, her husband took the helm of um, his father's church, a mega church actually in California. That is until his suicide changed everything. So Kayla was now a widow, and she's raising uh, three sons alone. In fact, I love this in the acknowledgments. Here's what she said. She said, to my boys, we are rebuilding this life together. I'm so proud of us. Love, mom. Now, I don't know what you've lost today. I don't know what you've been through in your life, but I know this, that life takes something from everyone. It steals, 
It does. And Solomon would say that we have to know that. We have to know that. And not only do we have to know it, we have to embrace it. And one of the other things he would say we need to do, and we're going to see this very clearly today, is we have to be able to recognize its brevity. We have to be able to acknowledge that life is short. Now look at verse 1. Solomon's going to introduce himself. Here's what he says. He says, the word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, he first introduces himself as a preacher or a teacher. I would say the best way to translate this word might be that to say that he introduces himself not as a teacher of religion, but as the philosophy professor. He's going to teach us about the way that the world works. Um, and it, so the second thing he wants to, that's of note here is he says he's the son of David. Many of you know that name. If you spent any time in Sunday school growing up, David was the king in Israel. Solomon was his immediate successor in really the heyday uh, of Jerusalem. David up into Solomon represents uh, the kingdom of or, or the, Jew, the, the kingdom of Israel at its um, highest point. And so uh, as David's son, uh, Solomon is the king of a very, very prosperous nation. He has more wealth, he has more power, he has more influence and fame than any of us will ever know. He was born into privilege. 1 Kings 4 says he was a man of great wisdom, a man who had more wisdom than anyone who had uh, preceded him. And so he's speaking from that vantage point. And then look what he's going to say in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, this is the Hebrew word, hebel. And uh, it can be understood, it can be translated in a number of ways. Uh, it actually occurs 38 times in the 12 chapters of the book Ecclesiastes. So its meaning is very, very important. So it's really vital that we take a few minutes together and discuss its meaning here. Some versions of the Bible actually translate the word meaningless. So if that's the case, he's saying meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Everything is meaningless. Um, now, uh, but there are some other ways to translate this word that I think are really important, and I'll tease those out for you now. One way that word hebel can be translated is like breath. It's really important. It's often used that way in the Old Testament, especially in the writings of David, uh, his father, and in the writings of Solomon. So, for example, his father wrote these words, Psalm 144. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. Now, that word breath is hebel. That's the word that Solomon is using here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2. His days are like a passing shadow. His father also wrote these words in Psalm 39. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. There's that word again, 
the word Hebel, a little later here in Psalm 39. He's going to say it again. Surely, verse 11, all mankind is a mere breath. Again, same word. A really famous uh, verse that was actually written by Solomon where this same word has this meaning. He says, charm is deceptive, but and beauty is fleeting. There's that word again, the word hebel, fleeting. In other words, he's saying, look, it's temporary, it's short. A woman can be beautiful, but in short order, over time, she is going to lose that beauty. And then he contrasts that with how important it is for a woman to have um, uh, an inner life with the Lord, right? He says, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, some of you have been coming for a while. You know, we just finished the book of James, right? He makes the exact same observation. He's talking in James 4 about our propensity to make plans, to presume that we're going to have a tomorrow to live out. And he says in James 4, 14, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist. You're a breath that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, where did James get that idea? He got that idea from this Hebrew word, hebel, that Solomon is using. In fact, he's repeating it in Solomon chapter 1, verse 2. And so really, um, what, 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 I would, what I would argue the author here is saying is he's saying the merest of breaths, the merest of breaths is everything but the merest of breath. He's saying everything is a breath. Life is short. What about marriage? It's a breath. You blink, and one day one of you is being lowered into the ground. What about children? They're going to grow up and leave in the blink of an eye. What about money? Well, you can't take it with you. You only hold it for a few moments. What about fame? It won't last in just a few years. You will be forgotten. It's all a breath. That's what he's saying here in Ecclesiastes 1-2. And then the teacher asks a question. It's such an important one. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, this is a hugely important phrase, this phrase, under the sun. Uh, what he's saying, he's making an observation about the way our world works. And, and so he's talking, when, anytime he uses that phrase, that's kind of code for a little different phrase. He's saying, for life apart from God. In other words, if someone's living under the sun and they're not looking above the sun, they're not looking for meaning beyond the sun, then he would say, you're just chasing after wind. And it's so short, it's fleeting, it's temporary. And then he says, what does man gain by all his work? This word gain is such a great word. It conveys the idea of something left over, something that remains at the end. And he's saying, listen, if people just toil as if this world is all there is, that is fleeting, that is short. Like, he would encourage us, look above the sun. Don't just live your life 
under the sun. And then everything he's going to argue in verses 4 through 11 are meant to answer this question. And both by the grammar of the question and his argument that follows, there's an answer that's meant to be understood here. And the answer is, what does man gain? Well, nothing. Absolutely nothing. There is nothing left over. All our work, all our scurrying, all our business, that gets handed off to someone else, right? And then the teacher, so what he's going to do is argue that when we die, that the earth is going to go on without us, that people are going to keep doing the same kinds of things they've always done, and then we will be forgotten. And he's going to argue that not only is life short, but that it's elusive. In other words, and some of us know this, really all of us know this already, that the harder we try to take hold of life, the harder it is that, that life slips through our fingers. So if life really is a breath or a mist or a vapor or a puff of smoke, I mean, have you ever tried to reach out and grab a puff of snow, smoke and put it in your pocket to save it for later? You can't do it. And what Solomon is saying is he's saying, look, if you try to reach out and take hold of life, it will slip through your fingers. This is what it's like to live in our world. And then look how he explains this in verses 4 through 8. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises, the wind blows to the south, then it blows around from the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Now here's what he's doing. He's saying, I want, us to, I want you to think about the world for a minute. And he's, he's got a threefold argument going on. He's going to make an argument around the sun. He's going to make an argument around wind. And he's going to make an argument around water. Things that all mankind have experience with. And here's his point. Here's what he's saying. He's saying even though there's lots of movement, there's lots of activity, none of those things ultimately go anywhere. The sun chases its own tail. It rises and sets predictably. The sun behaves in the same way every single day. The wind goes to the south and comes back around from the north. It too chases its own tail. Streams and rivers flow into the sea, but the sea never fills up, ever. Tides rise and fall, but all of this activity goes nowhere. Now here's what Solomon is arguing. He's arguing that life is like a treadmill. It's a, a circular pattern. Each generation runs and runs, hurries, busies themselves, scurries around, but they don't actually go anywhere. Just look at the sun, he says. It does the same thing every day. He's saying this, that life can be tedious and life can be monotonous. Tedious and monotonous. In other words, here's his point. No matter how much laundry you do, there will always be more laundry to do. 
No matter how many times you mow the yard, it is going to be need, it's gonna, you're going to need to mow it again. No matter how t- many times you get a haircut, you're going to have to get that many more haircuts. No matter how many times you take a bath, right, you're always going to need another bath. In fact, if you give up on baths, the rest of us will vote you off the island, I promise. No matter how many bills you pay this month, there will be bills waiting for you next month. And then look what he says in verse 8. I absolutely love this verse. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He's saying this, people are just like the sea. You have all this water flowing into the sea, but the sea is never filled up it's never satisfied and people are exactly the same way they take in all they can see with their eyes they take in all they can hear with their ears but it's never enough people are never satisfied in that grind in the monotony in that circular pattern of life it's wearying he said Uh, So he's just saying, look, in spite of all that this world has to offer, all the input that flows into the lives of human beings, uh, their appetites, their eyes, their ears are never, ever satisfied. We may even find satisfaction in a moment, but in the next moment, that satisfaction will flow away. That's what he's saying. Just an incredible thing. Here's what he means. This week's new and awesome song will be next year's old and forgotten song. That's what he's saying. See, he's saying that um, no matter how good the view is outside of your home, one day you will wake up and that view will just be predictable and boring. No matter how good the food is at a particular restaurant, if you eat at that restaurant every single day, you will get tired of that food. See, because what he's saying here is that as human beings, we crave new. We crave better. We crave different. But life in this world squelches that. It can be monotonous, tedious, and repetitive. Let me me tease this out with you. I'll bet you I can predict what most of you are going to do tomorrow, and I'll prove it. Tomorrow morning, your alarm is going to go off. You're going to wake up. Some of you may hit snooze. Then you're going to wake up. You're going to probably take a shower, get dressed. You're going to get in your car. You're going to go to your job, whether that's in a factory or classroom or a hospital or wherever it is that you go to work. You're going to work until lunch. Then you're going to go and you're going to get something to eat. And then after lunch, you're going to go back to your job. Then you're going to leave your job. Maybe you're going to go to the gym, but you're probably going to talk yourself out of that. Yeah, then uh, you're going you're gonna to eat dinner, and then you're going to watch some television, and then you're going to go to bed. And then you want me to tell you what you're going to do on Tuesday? You're going to do exactly the same thing over and over 
and over and over again. Listen, life is way more like Groundhog Day than any of us want to admit. That's why he says it's wearying, it's maddening. We crave, we yearn for new and better. But life in this world frustrates that. Uh, In fact, I just referenced the movie Groundhog Day. Now, that's an older movie. It came out in the early 90s. It starred um, Bill Murray. But the, the premise of the movie is that every day when he wakes up, he has to relive the exact same day. And so we actually have a clip that I want to show you that I think perfectly illustrates Solomon's point about how maddening that can be. So check out your screen. Nice going, boys. You're playing yesterday's tape.
See what I mean? I mean, he illustrated the point, right? Life, when Solomon says life is wearisome, it's tiresome, this is what he mean, means, the routine. I mean, we'll go to crazy lengths to eliminate the routine in our lives, right? We'll spend thousands of dollars taking trips and going places just to get out from under the monotony of that. And that's exactly what Solomon is, uh, you know, saying, And then look what he says, look what the teacher says in verses 9 and 10. He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. So again, here's what he's saying, right? There's there's really nothing new out there. Nothing changes, no matter how shiny it might be. No matter how much human beings may want something to come into their lives to break the constant repetitive striving, there's no such thing. He says it doesn't exist. Now, Maybe you're here this morning, you would say, well, you know, but he wrote that thousands of years ago. What about technology? Like, what about the internet? I mean, hey, that's new. In fact, I would argue that one of the reasons people get addicted to their screens, whether it be a phone, a tablet, a television, a laptop, is because it seems shiny and new. In fact, in his book, Hamlet's Blackberry, A Practical Philosophy for Building a Good Life in the Digital Age, William Powers says this. He says, though we barely realize it, every day we use connectivity tools that were invented thousands of years ago. Human beings have always wrestled throughout the ages with constantly changing forms of communication, and the internet is just another iteration of communication. And think about this, even technology. So we're in the middle of a brand new iPhone season, right? iPhone 15 just came out. Some of us are going to run out and we're going to get the iPhone 15. And this year's shiny new model in five years, it's going to be old and obsolete and outdated, right? That's, what, that's exactly what Solomon is saying. Um, so, for example, a new government is still a government. A revolution heralds a new era, but we've seen that before. A new baby is still just a baby. This world has played host to billions of babies over time. Even landing on the moon is just a form of exploration and adventure that have always been with mankind. It's just another expression of our need to explore. And then look at verse 11. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered, will not be remembered by those who follow them. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're going to die, and no one is going to remember you, and your children are going to die, and no one's going to remember them either. And if you don't believe me, Let me just ask you guys a question. How many of you know your great-great-great-grandparents' names? One, two, yeah. Okay, what about your great-great-great-great-grandparents? No? That's just 100 years, right? See, this is how quickly 
we forget. I mean, this is an illustration. I can, I can only tell you one of even my great, no, I can tell you two of my great grandparents' names. I, I'm, gone, I'm done when it comes to my great, great grandparents, and obviously so are most of you. We just prove Solomon's point, right, that people die and then they're forgotten. Uh, the teacher is arguing this. He's saying, look, we gain nothing from grinding our fingers to the bone, striving for a legacy, because under the sun, this world will go on impervious to what you've done or how you've lived. It is not going to remember you. And again, keep in mind, he's just describing life under the sun, the reality of this world. People die and they're forgotten. It happens to everybody. Now, here's why, uh, what's so important to understand. The author, the teacher wants this idea of death that every one of us is going to die to get deep down into our bones. And, uh, and I'll tell you why. Because he is convinced that until we embrace the reality of our death, we will never, ever truly live. We won't do it. And Ecclesiastes is a book not about how to die, but how to live. And so he's saying, whereas we tend to live forward, he's saying, no, 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 live backwards. In fact, there's a phenomenal book I've been reading, and that's the title, Life Live Backwards. And it's a phenomenal read on the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll reference, I'll bring it with me next week to show you so that if you want to go deeper into the book, you'll have the opportunity to do that. But he's just arguing that embracing and accepting your death is a key ingredient in living a beautiful life, a beautiful life. I want to illustrate this. So I want to show you a slide. There on the left, I want every one of you to imagine the date of your birth. Just put your birthday right there. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the blank on the right, none of us know what that date is going to be, right? We have, you have absolutely no control over the date um, in the right-hand side. Uh, and the reality is, even when you look back at the left-hand side, did you have any control over that date either? Did you? No, you just showed up right? It isn't like you did anything. It isn't like by some initiative, well, yeah, I made it happen. You know, I was born on September 11th, in my case, 1962, right? I can't claim any effort on my part to make that happen. That was beyond my control. Both of those blanks are outside of our control. And Solomon is going to say, listen, you can know the one who does control those dates. You can look above the sun for the solution to life. The only thing you and I can control in that equation, do you notice between the two blanks there's a little dash? Solomon would say that dash is really small and it's really short. And it's going to go by in a blink. It's, it's a breath. It's a mist. It's a vapor. And so you have to live every day 
fully. You have to enjoy God in every day that he gives you. That's his message here in the book of Ecclesiastes. So in other words, accepting our finitude, accepting our limits... See, the other thing Solomon's going to say over and over again, he's going to say things like this. Hey, you know, a man may start a lifelong project, and that project may fail, or it may succeed. You don't know. And you have to be okay with that. What he's saying is, we have to accept and embrace that not only are we going to die, but that there are very few things in this world that we can control at the end of the day. We have to recognize our limits. We have to recognize, Solomon say, what we can control and what we can't. And then we have to entrust all the rest to, uh, to God, right, to Christ. So acknowledging that we're not in control, it actually allows us more freedom. In other words, it's not confining when we acknowledge we have little control, it's freeing. So let me ask some of you, because some of you, you think your job, and you've thought this for a long time, is to manipulate and finesse and control all of your circumstances so that your life works out the way that you want it to. How's that working for you? It doesn't work. You know why? Because you weren't meant to hold the bag for everything that happens in our world. You aren't meant to hold the bag for all the weight and expectations that, you, that we place on our lone and solitary lives. And here's what's, you know, I mentioned earlier that I have never taught in 30 years here at SCC, I've never taught the book of Ecclesiastes. There's two reasons for that. One, it's a difficult book to teach. But secondly, it makes us uncomfortable. Because, uh, because in our culture, Far from embracing death, we do anything that we can to forget that we're going to die, right? We entertain ourselves, like we just, we will do anything to put that truth off. And Solomon says, no, 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 you can't do that. That is no way to live. And let me give you an example, right? When we sell insurance around death, we don't we don't call it death insurance, right? What do we call it? Sure, that's a lot more palatable. Life insurance. When I was growing up, there was a cereal that you could actually put in your bowl. It was called Life Cereal. Anybody remember that cereal? But nobody ever made a cereal called death. I mean, who would buy that cereal, right? Why? Because we don't like to think about it. It makes us uncomfortable. And so listen, I pray, I hope that you will join us for the next 10 or 11 weeks. Listen, I'll, I'll promise you this, you're going to be uncomfortable every week because Solomon's going to tell you like it is. Like if you like your coffee black, you're going to love Solomon because that's the way he serves it, week in and week out right? And here's what one of the things I think that Solomon is, is challenging. So most of us, when we grew up, uh, we grew up playing pretend games. So if we're playing with dolls, hey, let's pretend that we're Ken and Barbie and that we're going to grow up to live happily ever after. Or, hey, if we're in the backyard, let's pretend that the dinosaurs aren't extinct and that we're dinosaurs, 
right? Or whatever. I mean, whatever pretend game it's going to be, right? We, we're good at pretending. And we think that when we grow up, we quit pretending. And that's not true at all. We still play the same kinds of pretend games. So let me give you an example. Let's pretend that if we get that promotion or we raise good children, that we'll leave a legacy behind us. Solomon would say, that's just pretense. Let's pretend that if we change jobs or if we migrate more towards the sun, that we won't experience the humdrum tedium and ordinary repetitive nature of our lives. Or let's pretend that if we moved to a new and better house, that we would be happier and that we would never want to move ever again. Or Let's pretend that if we were married or if we were unmarried, that we would finally be whole and complete. Or let's pretend that if we end one relationship and begin another, that we'll never feel trapped or lonely or isolated. Or Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dishes and shopping lists and dirty diapers and busy evenings and sporting events, let's pretend that next week will be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things that we want to do and to become the people that we want to become. Or let's pretend that we can break the cycle of repetition and work and finally arrive in a world free of weariness and disappointment. See, the problem with pretending, friends, is it doesn't reflect reality. And it sets us up for expectations that fail us and confine us and reveal the limits of our very humanity. And so, so the teacher, week in, week out, is going to urge us to put pretending behind us so that we can readily and joyfully embrace what is true in this world. I mean, think about it. How many of you have ever had a friend recommend a movie and they say something to you along the lines like, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. You're going to love it. And so you go into the theater with all these expectations and then you kind of look at it, you kind of watch the movie and you're like, Man, I, they must have been smoking or something. Like when they, I, like I don't get it. Like this is definitely not. Why do you think that? Well, it's because you went. It, it's often, friends. It's our expectations that set us up for misery and disappointment. And that's part of what Solomon is getting at. And he's simply saying, look, when you only chase after things under the sun, it's like chasing the wind. Like, you, you'll never be able to catch it. You'll never be able to take hold of it. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One day your labor and activity is going to be forgotten. None of your pleasure is going to be remembered or felt. None of your wealth will go with you. And none of your fame will last. And so Solomon would urge us, why not reach for something more permanent? Why not live for something above the sun, instead of simply below. You know, 
One of the other benefits to doing the two things that Solomon asks us to do here in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, look, I want you first to accept your limits, to acknowledge that there's so much that happens in our world that you have no control over. You know the good news? You know the beautiful thing about living your life that way? If you get up every day and you live that life, your life that way, you're going to move toward your Savior. You're going to move toward every day the one who is in control and the one who can control the events of your one and only life. And if you live every day aware that one day you will die, you know what? You're going to cling to that Savior. You're going to cling to Him every day. You will know that you need Him every single day. Because as human beings, life under the sun is very unfulfilling. And so ultimately, we need to reach above the sun, even as that God would reach after us. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it's speaking of Jesus and his superiority over things like Moses and the angels. And here's what it says. He too shared in their humanity, meaning Jesus, so that by his death he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So how did Jesus, how was Jesus a game changer when it comes to this thing called death? Well, he died, he became a human, he lived in the futility of our world just like we have, but he did something we could have never done. He conquered death to offer the forgiveness of sins. He, was, he rose from the dead, right? Validating every claim that he ever made. And so that's how you reach for something above the sun. You cling to that Savior. You cling to his name every day, recognizing I got no control. And one day, Lord, I'm gonna meet you and I wanna be ready. I wanna be ready. And so that's, you know, we take his hand every day. It's so beautiful. And that, my friends, is the first step to a beautiful life. I want to pray with you and for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise uh, for the world that you've placed us in, even with all the uncertainty, with the brokenness. Uh, It doesn't work the way you intended. It's a fallen world, and therefore it's a broken world. So God, help us in this room. I pray for Shelbyville Community Church. I pray for the men and women in this room. I pray that you would help us live live beautiful lives in a world that sometimes isn't beautiful, in a world that sometimes fails our expectations. Help us to put our hope and trust in you. We ask it and we pray it in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Hey, so now listen, just an exhortation.